Welcome to episode 53 of Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy and with me as always is Matt Leach. How are you, sir? I'm really good. How are you? Very good. So today we have the design manager of brand culture, Nick Banikoff, who started in industrial and product design and originally studied architecture, but now goes under the profile experiential designer. Welcome, Nick. Uh, good morning. <laughs> What is an experiential designer? Um, the, the, you had to start with the hardest <laughs> question, didn't you? Get straight stuck. Uh, just give it to us in like a sentence. One of the funny things is, um, so uh, over the years I've spoken with a lot of people who do what I do, and um, at parties or uh, out and about, it's the question you always dread, what do you do for a living? <laughs> because uh, you can give the glib answer which is I design signs or I design large-scale graphics but it only sort of touches on a portion of uh, of what you actually do day to day so the one the one sentence answer is you design signage and large-scale graphics which invariably leads to somebody saying oh so like a sign on the front of a shop or something um, like billboards right yeah, yeah like billboards <laughs> exactly exactly um, which is not what it is at all it's um, large-scale graphics uh, signage increasingly digital uh, for whole environments and those environments could be anything from a shopping centre to a university to uh, an airport or or anything like that community centre even so I imagine there's there's a fair bit of psychology that goes into that and about how people move through space and so there's people come into this profession from a whole series of uh, backgrounds um, so you mentioned earlier that I come from an architectural and industrial design background um, but we also have a lot of people coming in from um, graphic design backgrounds and and each of those uh, I wouldn't call them uh, their professions, but uh, but in in our sort of point of view, there is specialities. Each of those brings different things to the table. So, uh, from the architectural background, you get uh, an understanding of paths of travel, uh, traffic flow, the psychology of space. Yeah. Uh, from graphic uh, design, which is um, uh, one of the things that I've sort of picked up on uh, a, a lot more in the last five years, comes a, a real understanding of brand and how people connect with brands. And then of course you mesh those two together and you've got the psychology of brands in a, in a space mm. and uh, how people experience that. So you can go from a, a very practical job, which is how do people move around an airport, uh, to a, a very uh, emotional um, brand responsive uh, job which is how do we signpost a corporate headquarters and mm -hmm. the two uh, have very different um, practical uh, well they, they have very different briefs effectively one's a practical wayfinding solution the other is more about experience and, and you'll find when you're doing wayfinding for a, um, an office building it's the simplest thing in the world it's it's effectively a bunch of room numbers and some uh, <laughs> uh, some some level numbers and a directory down on the, key on the floor. Right yeah, right exactly. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, can people find a meeting room? Okay, so we need something <laughs> on the meeting room. Are we going to call it after the company founders, or we're going to call it twelve point one? Right. Yeah. Is there testing in that kind of? I imagine, like you know, as you said, like can they find their way to the meeting room? How do you? Is that through observation or through printing a three pieces of paper and just kind of <laughs> seeing if people can find the meeting room? It depends on the client, um, the degree of difficulty they're facing. 
um, and their appetite for um, investigating that. Mm. About 80% of uh, wayfinding will have a, a relatively practical and uh, simple solution. And as far as the psychology is concerned, um, all of wayfinding is built on um, people's understanding of spaces. So what you're trying to do is um, leverage somebody's understanding of what they would expect to see mm. um, and and make sure that they see what they expect to see. Yeah, so you're not trying to like reinvent the wheel every time. Exactly, yeah. okay. exactly. Right. Uh, yeah, we're going to identify things with apples and oranges and we're going to yeah. pour, pour down here. Oh, look, they're both <laughs> orange. Yeah, <laughs> what, what have we done? Um, uh, yeah, so 80% of it is, uh, is this process that you go through and you can work out what the solution is based on precedent. When you get a, a really difficult job, and the most difficult jobs are where you get um, a new build um, attaching to an existing build, uh -huh. that's when you have to really start to investigate what's the best way um, to approach this situation. So what does that mean? What do you mean by new build attached to an old, an old build? Okay, so we're working on a hospital at the moment, yeah. um, and a lot of hospitals are like this. Uh, they're very expensive facilities. A lot of thought goes into the clinical requirements of why you build something. Uh, somewhere, right. but this is in the um, uh, in rural New South Wales. Uh, it's made up of about uh, probably ten or twelve buildings, which over the years they've built a building and they've connected it, and then they've built yeah. another building next to that, and they've oh, connected right. that on two levels, and then they've built a building that connects with both of those buildings, but on one level it connects on this level, and the other level it connects on this level. I always find with those, it, it, the um, mobile reception is normally pretty bad as well, so even if you're trying to like find out where you are or call someone, you're like, I, I don't know where I am, and then it's like, it's dead. So. Yeah, it's shocking, particularly in the country. Yeah. Um, but what these guys have, uh, are doing is they're demolishing, um, basically, they've demolished one building and built a new one already, and they're in the midst of demolishing another two buildings and building two new buildings. But uh, but they've all been done independently. You know, they're sort of like silos. And yeah. then they've still got the existing buildings all around it. So that's an example of a really challenging wayfinding solution. I imagine yeah. you're already coming yeah. into a wayfinding solution uh, system there, aren't you? And so something's probably already been set up or there's multiple ones already set up? Uh, there's, so uh, there was an existing wayfinding solution um, which still exists in sort of half the site. Then when the first building was put up, the architects uh, put in a wayfinding solution for, for that building, but it was completely self-referential. Self it didn't reference right. the rest of the site or consider it at all. And now uh, we're going in and we've got two new buildings that we're working on. Um, the very first, even though it wasn't part of our supposed scope, the very first thing we did is we took a step back and we said, um, we, we can't design this without considering the whole site because mm. even if you don't have the budget to go and replace these signs in these other buildings right now, we want to put in place something that um, when you do get that budget, there's a clear uh, solution to um, replacing the wayfinding throughout the, the whole site and making sense of that. And, and how do you find that conversation? Does that make, tend to make a lot of sense to a client in this particular case? or It almost always makes sense yeah, okay. um, because they understand uh, that they have a problem because mm. their staff, the, the, uh, the nurses, doctors wandering around are 
continually answering questions, where's this, where's that? Right. Yeah. And, and that's um, uh, what makes, makes wayfinding a, a relatively easy sell in, um, in some instances. We, we had a corporate client recently and we, um, uh, they had uh, Atlassian, you know, big, exciting yeah. client. Um, and uh, they, they're growing at 50% staff per year so every year they add another 50 percent to the wow. number of staff they had previously yeah, these employers yeah um yes. and so they're over like uh, eight maybe even more 10 levels in several buildings um and what they um what they found they, they have people starting every single week yeah i can imagine uh, and we sat down and we just did a, a very simple on the back of an envelope calculation if we save uh everybody in your company 10 minutes a week by the number of people by the amount and these guys are paid a lot yeah. by, the, by the amount you've paid this That's is what you can zeros. save yeah, yeah. there's a yeah. lot of zeros in there um, so yeah if, if there's a way from finding problem it's yep. very easy to, mm. to to solve it and and likewise when I started doing this I started um my first wayfinding job was in uh, 99, just prior to the Sydney Olympics. So I got thrown in the deep end with the Sydney Olympics. Yeah. Um, but uh, when, I, when I first started it, you had to sort of, uh, there wasn't wide awareness of uh, what wayfinding was and uh, what the benefits of it were. But we find nowadays that uh, any large development, um, there's a requirement for a wayfinding consultant uh, mm. to be involved in it. And then hopefully we get to do some uh, some of the fun stuff as well. And so I'm assuming that obviously you're talking about kind of, you know, with the hospital, you're coming into something that's been established. It hasn't really been thought out of a, of a big plan. You're coming through to kind of solve this problem that's yeah. happened over time. On the other side of things, how does it work when is, you know, at what stage do you get involved in the project if it's a new, new building? Like, you know, okay, we're going to build a building, here's the site plan. Do they then give you a call or do they build the building and think, everyone's getting <laughs> everyone's really <laughs> lost. Um, I couldn't even find my own way here. Eight clients came through and none of them came out yet. So, I mean, at what stage do you come? I'm sure it varies, but commonly, or where's the best spot to come in? Uh, the best spot is as early as possible. Sure. And I promise you I, I work on more than hospitals, but I'll give you another example of a hospital. <laughs> if, uh, if you've got a large project, which is quite complex, um, and you've got... A requirement for a wayfinding consultant to come on board often you'll be called in very early in the process just to comment just to say uh, you've got an issue here we need to address this you've got an issue here you need to address this right think think about this think about that exactly yeah. um, so uh, we worked on um, so, uh, some more uh, Western uh, New South Wales hospitals one at uh, Parks which was a new build we were on right from the start and so we were able to work with the architects to put together a strategy and part of that strategy is about where the environmental graphics come into it the experiential graphics i should say we were able to work with the architects and say okay so we've got uh, we established a color scheme mm -hmm. uh, in conjunction with the architects this area down here is blue this area is green this area is yellow this area is hot pink or whatever you want to make it mm -hmm. um, and then we established not just signage I mean wayfinding is uh, people think of wayfinding they think of signage um, wayfinding is not just signage it's um, how um, different corridors look mm -hmm. so you can direct somebody down a white corridor or yep. a dark corridor 
Um, in this instance, what we did was we established large graphic walls at um, various uh, focal points down corridors. So somebody could stand at a, um, uh, at a decision point and look down four different corridors and go, okay, that's the blue corridor. I know I need to go to the blue corridor because it's this. And that gives you the opportunity to start exploring some um, uh, some graphics in the environment as well, right. which is traditionally where the graphics have started to come into uh, the wayfinding, of course, in conjunction with the branding mm. uh, components. So that's, that's sort of the crossover. You mentioned decision point just before. So th- that is a term that you use... Often, yeah, absolutely. So the um, uh, so this is very much from the architectural point of view of, uh, of the process that we would follow. The, the very first thing you do as part of a, a program is uh, develop a wayfinding analysis. Um, where are people coming into the site? Uh, where are they going to? What are the paths they take? Um, what are the decision points? Who are they? Um, and uh, you know, well, well, what frame of mind are they in? Mm-hmm. So that's important mm-hmm. for a hospital. Uh, is it a, 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 a leisure journey, which is a more wandering sort of path? Is it a I need to get to my departure gate at an airport, which yeah. is slightly stressful, but could be distracted by um, Hermes shops or whatever? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you look at the audience, um, the, the environment, and there are various software tools that can be used to analyze that Um, an experienced wayfinder can generally sit down and map it out fairly quickly Uh, if you know what the destinations are if you know um, who your audience is um, and how they use the environment um, somebody with experience can pretty effectively map out you know we've got a lot of people in this particular point mm. um, who are going to be looking for directions and I guess you'll have some sort of some sort of things I'm thinking like airports where you'll have like a rush hour time where this is going to be this is going to be so packed between these yeah. sort of hours and it's going to be yeah. more or less empty by comparison so and then we're going to expand out again so how do we deal with it when there's hundreds and hundreds of people coming through at once and when there's 10 or something I suppose yeah the um, the the massive crowds, the, yeah, the um, the peak hour sort of uh, rushes. Okay, so what that defines in a brief is um, what situation you're catering for. Mm. So we've done a, a fair bit of work for um, transport uh, for New South Wales recently, and um, you get a difference between, um, say, a site like Central Station. So mm. a site like Central Station is. Uh, you've got to design for peak hour yeah that's sure. uh, that's that's your your target and and then on the the quieter levels you're sort of saying well they'll the peak hour will uh, cater for them um, then we're designing for a ferry wharf at uh, Milson's point um, that gets uh, a peak hour uh, at about four o'clock on Sunday afternoon all right and the reason is, is because of uh, Lunar Park. It's everybody right. who finishes off at Lunar yeah. Park. Yeah, okay. And and so a large part of the discussion we've had with um, the stakeholders in relation to that site is, what are we actually catering for with yeah. what we're installing there? Um, and the end result was what we're actually catering for is the day-to-day users of the site. We're not catering for these crowded uh, situations and we're not catering necessarily. So we consider them, but 
what we're installing there is not designed specifically for them. And yeah. we're certainly not designing for um, the twice a year when that uh, wharf is absolutely packed because of New Year's Eve or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's a crowd management uh, issue. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's about getting your targets right, I guess. Yeah. It, I just want to take you back as well because you corrected yourself before and you called it environmental and then you corrected it back to experiential. <laughs> um, okay, what so do you do? Yeah, what do you do? Uh, yeah, the, well, what I regard as the peak body in the world for, um, for what we do, or the peak professional organisation, is the um, Society of Experiential Graphic Designers. Um, they're based in the US. We've got a couple of... Uh, chapters in Australia now, um, one which just started up in Sydney, shameless plug, obviously. <laughs> um, they only recently, um, because this has been a, a relatively new profession and it's been developing, uh, they were until recently the Society of Environmental Graphic Designers. And invariably, uh, everybody said, oh, so you design uh, green systems, yeah, do you? sustainability. Yeah, <laughs> so after about 10 years of uh, educating all of my architectural clients what uh, <laughs> environmental graphic design was, I had to uh, change it to experiential graphic design. Because it's the thing that always comes up with graphic design as well, the whole, oh, should we be called visual communicators or... Communication design. Yeah, yeah. all that kind of stuff. And, and half of me feels that it's just, it's a conversation we don't need to be having. Like, let's just, let's just call, call it what it is. Um, but it, I guess if you've got that opportunity, when it's still a kind of, it's still evolving and still, um, not that graphic design isn't evolving, mm. but you should should take the opportunity when you can. I Absolutely, guess. yeah. It was a big call, but um, it was the right call. Yeah. So this was. Uh, don't quote me on it, but I'd say about three or four years ago that this change was made, and even now it might have been too late to make that change. Right. So it was a push for it. It was just causing too much confusion about. Yeah. Uh, it's hard enough to explain what we do with, <laughs> without getting mixed up in uh, whether we're planting things in creek beds or something. So, um, so you yourself and Carlo Giannasca from Frost. Yes. Um, yeah. So tell tell us about like what what this means, other than kind of change changing the conversation about what you guys do yeah. and the benefits of the profession but what does it mean what's the point of having something like this in australia or sydney um well really it's uh, it's the it has the same benefits as as any uh, professional organization mm. um but it's particularly important for for us because of uh, the the low level of understanding of um experiential graphic design and and what it brings uh, the other key thing that we want to achieve is sharing information and uh, creating a, a larger sense of community uh, about what we do. Um, there are a, a ton of architects uh, in Sydney, there are plenty of graphic designers. There aren't that many uh, experiential graphic designers uh, right. around. So I went, I've been a member of Sedged on and off since about 2001 or 2002 two something like that um and uh the annual conference is in the u.s so they're very u.s centric at the moment um obviously because they're a u.s organization i went to a conference for the first time so the annual conference for the first time about three years ago in chicago and um 
it was uh, mind blowing. Yeah. And then, mm. oh my God, I'm. There's uh, other these, people like me. These people want to talk about the same things that are, you know, the eyes don't just glaze over when I mention, uh, oh, well, yes, well, we've got this wonderful system that we're using here. This is um, how people feel when they go to Comic Con, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. This <laughs> is my people. Everyone yeah. comes out of their basement and, yeah. yeah and, right. uh, but. Not knocking Comic Con, I love yeah. that stuff. Yeah, yeah I love Comic Con too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, funny story. <laughs> uh, but totally irrelevant to what we're talking about. That's what um, this podcast is all about. Yeah. <laughs> More than just a sense of community and meeting people that um, uh, that, that share your interests, um, I, I learned so much at the conference and mm. I, I probably learned more in uh, two days than mm. I learned in uh, a, a year of just you know your standard research that you do on the internet or looking yeah. for this or looking for that etc yeah. um, and it's the combination of those benefits is, is the reason that we're that Carlo and I uh, are both really passionate about um, uh, working making this work um, and people uh, we've we've been speaking to industry people about it and people who aren't sensed members and um, uh, and a lot of them are really excited as well mm. because they can see that need to share ideas share knowledge um, build up that it's um, a massive thing isn't it I know, I know mm. when you came to work at here at WeWork mm. you were just really excited about being around more people and just having that kind of yeah, sharing ideas and those. Um, oh, it makes a huge difference to your to your frame of mind. And some, something Matt and I were talking about is kind of in a cluster with a bunch of other people. And there's designers and people from startup communities and some sort of web developers and just some being experiential around. designers. They're, they're, I don't think there are. They might <laughs> no, be. maybe not here. <laughs> um, but yeah, just that that sense of community is just like a huge, huge, well, huge deal well, when you don't have it. Yeah, like I, I think d- you notice the gap. Absolutely, mm. I. I worked for myself uh, for five years, right. um, uh, and I would occasionally have large projects which I'd bring on a bunch of people for, and then that would sort of peter out, and then I'd be working by myself for three months, and then be working with people again. Um, one of the main reasons I stopped doing that and went to uh, work with brand culture, um, apart from enjoying the sort of work that they did and produced, was uh, the ability to work around people again mm. because uh, five years of spending large portions of your working life uh, in a, by yourself is mm. uh, you, you just lose that excitement and you lose that uh, drive and energy and and push to uh, to go further mm. um, so a, a great example of that is when we did UTS so we we developed this huge program uh, at UTS so I think there were six and a half thousand signs uh, in wow. that in that development. There were uh, three major new buildings going up while this was being rolled out. Um, so those three major new buildings were the um, impetus behind uh, updating the the signage across the campus. Um, so six and a half thousand signs, uh, three new buildings, and to give you an idea of a, a signage heavy heavy environment. 
which a university is not necessarily a signage-heavy environment. Mm. Um, those 6,500 signs, if, if our scope had been broader, that could have easily doubled. It could have been um, 13,000, 15,000 signs. Wow. They didn't even replace everything. Yeah. So well, what we uh, discovered was that we had a huge um, coordination and implementation uh, issue with um, uh, with getting all of this signage um, approved, uh, mm. signed off. You have Frank Gehry somewhere kind of going, oh, like this? Was it around that time <laughs> when they were building we, that one? We had Frank Gehry's minions oh, looking yeah. over <laughs> our shoulder uh, with, uh, with a lot of scepticism um, that we worked it out. Uh, they were happy with what we did in the end. Nice. Um, actually, funnily enough, the um, uh, Durback Block Jaggers, uh, who did... Um, I think it's building seven, which is this lovely sort of warped uh, building. Uh, they were actually the ones who engaged um, most, most fully, fully, fully with, yeah. with, with the with the signage program, mm. and and worked really closely with us to to make sure that the, because we had to ensure uh, as the signage consultant for UTS that what we were doing uh, was consistent with mm. everything else. And yeah. um, there's a whole range of reasons for that but the two primary ones are from a wayfinding perspective consistency is key yeah um people want to see the same information in the same place um and the second thing is uh which people often forget is there's a huge maintenance um requirement for places like a mm. university so you don't want something that's slightly different in an one mm. building to the standard because you want to go in there and pop off that panel and put a new one on yeah. when invariably it changes uh, three months down the track um so they they do the uh, block jaggers were the guys who um, uh, created actual frameworks which would fit our standard signage suite which would work both for their building and for um, the university wayfinding system. I guess it's got to be hard for them hey because they've they've designed a space and I guess in their mind they would perfectly love if there was no signage because it just it shows their oh yeah their work oh, yeah. Off in the best <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and just the minimalist uh, yeah. designer coming yeah. out. So but yeah so then to have another company brought in to sort of go, we're going to put signs all over this. That, that's why we like being involved as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, because yeah. Yeah. Okay. signage is, it, it's a requirement. You, you've got to have it um, because people lose that 10 minutes every week yeah. and mm-hmm. it adds up. Um, so the reason we'd like to get in as soon as possible is because you can actually work with the architects and say, okay, so we need this, we need this, we need this, we need this. And you can collaborate with them and actually create something that, they love and you love and it serves a purpose and uh, everybody's happy yeah so so, um, the UTS project sounds like kind of an extra level of complexity when you're like from a consultancy perspective you sort of mentioned you've got this one building with these architects you've obviously got UTS as the client I'm presuming um, and then you've got the other buildings and are there other wayfinding people involved or and then your audience experimental designers audience is the students or people yeah it's a lot of humans to wrangle Um, yeah which is uh, one was one of the impetuses of um, developing uh, uh, Media Bank PAM right Um, so uh, because it was such a a moving feast and and so complex with so many stakeholders um, what we developed was a digital system that uh, um, we could plan all of the signage in and and it's actually even worse 
than you suggested because um, <laughs> because the uh, universities are made up of um, uh, uh, departments and then in departments you have schools and then within the schools you may have a dozen centres as right. well and each of those has a say in how mm. their space uh, in the wayfinding and how their space is signposted etc um, so you might have uh, in uh, Tower One at UTS, for example, you might have you know seven or eight key stakeholders who have to approve various levels or portions of levels of uh, the signage. Wow. So, um, so the the benefit of this system from from a planning point of view is we could uh, put everything into the system and give access to f- for give access to certain areas or approved areas so that uh, we could have that client engagement and that um, achieve a sign-off, which was fantastic because... It just wouldn't have happened otherwise. Pretty much, (laughs) pretty much. Uh, uh, Typically, uh, even um, a a three-storey building, for instance, you might go back for three or four rounds, Mm. um, depending on the quality of the information you've received at the start. Um, which can't be guaranteed in a situation like UTS. Um, uh, we we did it in one round. One mm. meeting was all that was required. We wow. had all, all we had eighty percent of everything signed off uh, through the system, and then we, ju- we just went in and went through the difficult ones and got signed off. But what we then discovered, the, the really cool thing, was that suddenly we had all, all of this system with all of these plans in it, which actually had a, an up-to-date database of all of the destinations. So what we're able to do is hook into that and provide an online wayfinding system ah. based off the signage system. Ah, right. Because hmm. the signage system knows where everything is. Yeah. And as soon as you change... Um, uh, Joe Bloggs' office over yep. there to, to Jane Bloggs' office. Um, that's updated in the system, so the system knows that Jane Bloggs is now here instead of over there. Mm. And if you've got six signs that point you to Joe Bloggs' office, you can actually go back and change all of those because one of the big problems with mm. uh, large environments is legacy signage. Yep. You change the sign on the door, but you forget that there's six signs that point to it. Yeah. Um, and this is all, all programmed into the system. Uh, yeah, now, so. and so you just go, well, where are the signs that say Joe Blogs? So can you use, so with MediaBank, can you use that for other things that aren't experiential design? Because it sounds like the ultimate kind of planning. It's, it's um, PAM is actually short for physical asset manager. Right. Um, so we built it uh, as a as a wayfinding tool, but you could really use it to manage any physical asset in the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the other the other thing that we love about it is that, uh, and and what gets people excited about it when we talk about it is uh, the fact that you can just uh, press a button and spit out all of your documentation in one in one go. So uh, our documentation is very similar to architectural documentation mm. um, as opposed to, um, say, a, a brand manual or something like that. Um, when you're implementing a, a wayfinding system, you need plans, um, you know, six different kinds of schedules, for instance, uh, uh, set out documentation, all of this. Um, it's got to go out to lots of different uh, people, um, I assume. Yeah, yeah. Or, um, yes. Uh, certain things go to different people. Yeah. It's, uh, it would take an hour to go through the whole process. Yeah, sure. yeah. Um, <laughs> but the fantastic thing is, uh, but any time you update that documentation, you've got to update it in six different places. Mm. So if you delete a sign or change a sign, you've got to, oh, yeah, I've got to go change it here, got to go change it here, got to go change it here. And architectural software has sort of been uh, building up 
to this, but there's been no wayfinding uh, yeah, specific yeah. software that can actually do that. So instead of Excel over here and InDesign over there and Illustrator over here and AutoCAD, if you've got somebody who's uh, who's using it in the in the studio, it's it's all in one spot. The, um, I wanted to ask about, I've been working on a job recently and one of the big things that was really forced in to this job was accessibility. Yes. How much does that impact and the kind of legislation around that impact your job? Oh. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, it seems like a, a thing that the government's particularly focusing on to try and increase people's awareness. And, and it's, oh, there was a... Um, it impacts it a lot mm. uh, because there are requirements for equitable access, um, and that involves uh, if if you have a, an access point or a, to any building or facility um, that's not accessible uh, by somebody in a wheelchair, for instance, um, you have a legal requirement to guide them to the alternate path. Um, now, most modern architecture is very good in that it's considered from the outset, um, so you don't end up with all of this ridiculous um, uh, signage. Mm. Uh, not ridiculous because of what it's trying to achieve, yeah. but uh, you just end extra, up with over-signed yeah. environments, which detracts from wayfinding because you're uh, detracting somebody's attention from the message uh, message that they may want with this bright blue sign over here, which is the accessible right. uh, yeah. path. Um, so that that's that's not too bad. That's largely been uh, resolved in modern architecture. The, the big one at the moment is um, uh, people who are visually impaired, yeah. and and this is increasingly important because of the aging population. Obviously, your eyesight deteriorates as, yep. as you get older. Um, so there has been a big push uh, recently to update the Australian standards in regards to that. Yep. Um, there was a draft paper released at the start of uh, last year, or might have been middle of last year, for comment on um, uh, including braille and tactile mm. um, signage in, uh, in all wayfinding environments. Um, and this is actually one of the things that um, led to uh, an interest in Sedged from Carlo and myself. Um, the industry in Australia, um, all pretty much all of the major practitioners in Australia got together and put in a joint submission saying that this was a bad idea. And the reason that, that it's a bad idea is because uh, Braille and Tactile, because of the signs they have to be, um, take up huge amounts of real estate. They're, yep. they're very visually intrusive in an environment. And what the uh, draft hadn't considered was emerging technologies mm. um, the fact that um, so the the way that uh, Pam actually got adopted by UTS is we added a feature of text to speech so you could stand in front of a um, sign you could hit a button and it would read out what was on the sign right. to you. So is that like a button on the wall no, a button on your phone, button on your, phone. Uh, a button on your mobile phone okay. and the reason we went with the phone was because then you could go to another sign and you could press the button again and uh, <laughs> You were keeping the visually impaired use touch screens? Uh, yes. Well, yeah. I imagine you can have a location yeah. based as well. So yeah, right. Yeah. As well. Yeah. well, there's a there's the whole iBeacon technology as well, mm. which can be mm. leveraged to do that. But uh, vision impairment isn't necessarily 100% blind. Sure. Vision impairment is um, it can be, uh, you know, uh, uh, 70% 
ocular uh, degeneration, 80%. Um, so color. You, yeah, color. Yeah. So, so uh, a lot of people who are considered visually impaired can effectively use a phone. Mm. Um, so again, it's get about the most appropriate solution. That's a, it's, a, it's a really cost-effective way of providing information to people who are visually impaired without putting in giant signs everywhere. Yeah. And only a fraction of the population actually even a fraction of people with visual impairment actually read braille and tactile well that was the other thing i was thinking of yeah, yeah they're gonna right. have to learn braille now as well yeah. at what point do you at what point do you decide right you know at 60 percent yeah. vision impaired 65 yeah. what point do you think i need to learn braille it's it and it's <laughs> it's more than that and then you get some people read braille but uh, more people read uh, tactile lettering uh, than actually read Braille. Braille is very specific for people who um, uh, who've had poor uh, lines uh, since birth. And, yeah, yeah, that kind right. of thing. Um, so, uh, but if you've got something like a phone where you can have text to speech um, instead of trying to read a sign, then, mm. then if you're solving the problem for eighty percent of uh, the the population who have problems reading a sign, then uh, you say, okay, so. Well, if we've got those 20%, which might be 10 people a week who visit, well, our policy will be that we will escort them around. Yeah. And that will actually be a cost-effective solution compared to putting up and maintaining um, these Braille and tactile signs. Um, it's, yeah. it's interesting. In Hong Kong, the uh, train system has Braille um, across everything. Yeah. But they've built it into the design, so it actually looks really stylish. Yeah. But you imagine if then everyone was like then trying to build into their designs for you know every business suddenly you just become a mishmash of mm. be completely i guess i wanted to take that a bit further as well because it's interesting about the environmental moving to experiential because mm. uh, that makes perfect sense because i assume it's incorporating emerging tech now absolutely and how much does your job change now that you've got google maps and you've got you know all these other kind of things that smartphones obviously smartphones yeah. that you can you can link in vr <laughs> ar yeah, you know, it's um, a lot is the short answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, the emerging tech is actually, uh, I think over the last three years, um, has probably impacted both sides of, of what we do uh, to a similar extent. So it's very obvious to see how our, our digital wayfinding um, and tech m might affect a signage system. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're in an airport, you still need to sign up uh, above yeah. that yeah. says those gates are the, that way. Um, whatever happens at ground level that uh, improves that experience. The, um, the digital uh, transition for, for the pure experience part of it, the, the uh, branding and, and the creating uh, uh, an environment that achieves a, a feeling or effect or a, uh, that you want, that's where it's really uh, mm. come leaps and bounds. So, um, you know, ten years ago, if uh, you wanted to put up a big graphic in a in an airport which said "Welcome to uh, LA," um, and I think uh, is it LA or is it uh, yeah LA or Chicago has got a really good example of of this. Uh, you would have put up a banner, and then when mm. you wanted to change that graphic, you would have changed it out. Um, one of the incredibly exciting things is large-scale digital graphics, 
which are, are being done nowadays and are being done purely for experiential reasons mm. as opposed to giant digital advertising billboards um, because you can create feelings and experiences uh, as people are traversing a space yeah. um, that uh, provide a, a much more subtle message than uh, just welcome. Um, so I'm pretty sure it's uh, LA. Um, they've got a series of giant screens up there which have falling water they have shadows of people they pretend that it's the facade of a building with shadows of people walking behind it um, and, and they provide this incredible welcome experience mm. uh, and they achieve that by being calming in some areas as you're coming um, as you're arriving so the arrival images are very much calming and welcoming um, the images in the departure areas are, are much more active yeah uh, and music in the background. <laughs> get on the plane yeah. pulling their hair out well they want you to shop so yeah, they, want, they want to keep the blood pumping right yeah. Yeah. so yeah well that's interesting how much do you get involved in sort of sound i guess and and light so our um part in that would be to and, and this is where it's changed over the last five to three to five years. Mm. Uh, our part in that would be to um, define what that experience is as part of a, a wayfinding um, process or a, a wayfinding program, um, or simply an experiential program, mm. and uh, work with the clients and people who are sound designers, yeah. who are digital designers, who are system designers, to, to map out what that system is, what that experience is, and how it gets brought back into and um, uh, relates to the rest of the space. So the, stra the strategy and then working with... Um, yeah, it's it, it's quite architectural actually, yeah. it, in, in that um, it, it's very rarely uh, uh, thought of right at the start of a building, even new buildings nowadays, uh, it'll often be retrofitted um, mm. into a building. Um, and that's because it's, uh, to achieve something like that takes a lot of work and a yeah. lot of commitment to achieve. And then you have to, content is king. So you have to have a strategy behind that content as well. Uh, you can't Constantly have evolving, upgrading, yeah. Yeah, you can't have the same thing for um, even two, three years, mm. uh, depending on where it is and how often that somebody might be expected to see it. Yeah. So the new... Um, Convention Centre. Um, ICC. ICC, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I went and saw um, uh, Nick Cave down there. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they've got a new digital wall yeah. uh, down the down the side of one of those buildings, and it's it's got a star field. Yeah, it's got a graphic that's based on a star field right. uh, in it. And um, we were standing there for... I don't know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes because they had a bar on the side there, so we were having a few <laughs> drinks before the show. Um, and uh, in that time, I knew the entire sequence. Ah, uh, right. So the next time I go there, if that sequence is the same... Boring. Um, not boring, but it just doesn't have any meaning or impact. It's not, mm. it's not achieving anything. Yeah. And so therefore, why is it there? Mm. And, and that's... To me, that's the basis of the the experiential side of what we do. Mm. There, there must be meaning to it. There must be a reason to it. Mm. Um, and preferably it's... Uh, and the beauty of digital is that, that you can update that, you can change that. Yeah. Traditionally, we've been 
incredibly subtle with um, uh, with graphics which are designed to be there for a long time subtle is the wrong word um, should have a, an element of uh, to my mind a mystery to them yeah. um, they should have something that uh, if you've got a picture of a chair on a wall uh, in 10 years it's still going to be a picture of a chair on the wall if you've got um, a picture of uh, a disassembled chair on the wall shown from a, a cool angle or something that's something that somebody can explore and if that's got a reason for being there perhaps it was an old uh, furniture workshop mm-hmm. um, and they've redone it into a cafe there's something that somebody can engage with and explore yep. at a time um, and and I think that's still applicable to digital um, as well as uh, your traditional static imagery um, that sense of uh, something that that can be revisited. Um, yeah, it's incredibly important mm. um, from my point of view anyway. Okay. We, we should talk more about brand culture as well. How long have they been around for now? Um, so I've been with the company for um, three and a half years now. Um, they've been around since well, 10 years, 10 to 12 years. Um, so um, it was it started off when it was more graphics-based agency, mm. I believe. Um, but over the years, it's slowly uh, become very much a specialist in experiential graphic design. Also uh, large-scale stuff as well. It's, uh, I, I guess I've sort of been watching them sort of grow and just take on bigger and bigger and bigger stuff. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's sort of a natural business progression. Sure. Um, but, I mean, that's what experiential graphics is. Uh, it is the large-scale stuff. It doesn't, doesn't work on a small... Uh, well, <laughs> we're not, we, we don't spend our time designing brochures. We don't mm. spend our time designing logos. There are certainly people in the studio with the um, experience and ability to do that, um, but that's not what we focus on. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, so uh, brand culture came from a very much a, a graphic design background um, and then became very much a, they, they came in on the experiential graphic side mm. of the um, uh, on the experiential side of experiential graphic design so uh, very much about branding and mm. branding environments so bringing a brand alive in a space um, so a perfect example of uh, what we would do on, in that sphere is um, if you have say AMP for instance yep. uh, putting together a new office building um, as part of that fit out uh, there's some basic base level wayfinding uh, that needs to be done but I think I mentioned before that um, uh, to me an office building is often the simplest uh, wayfinding <laughs> project you could ever do um, yeah I said room numbers uh, yeah, uh, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and level numbers um, but the really exciting um, opportunity in that environment is AMP uh, wants their people to be happy. Mm. Uh, they want their people to be motivated and they want to express to um, uh, people and visitors um, what their what the company DNA is, what it's about and what's important to them. Um, and that's where you get an opportunity to take a wall and say something about... Um, mm. uh, could be the company's history. It uh, could be the company's future. Could be what their um, uh, 
if it's digital, it could be monthly. Um, mm. yeah, so, uh, so brand culture came from that sort of uh, DNA. Um, and over the last five years, it's moved more into uh, the wayfinding um, uh, side of the coin. So, uh, and that's what I've been doing for, the last, well, since 99. So and another question that I had was just kind of what's next in, in your life? And this could be with, within brand culture, uh, with what you're doing with the society as well, or you know, what's, what's the next big challenge or the next big project? Or Well, the um, software that we mentioned yeah. uh, before MediaBank, um, so I, I retain an involvement with that, but that's actually become uh, a separate company to brand culture now. Right. Um, okay. So, because obviously we're selling a piece of software to our direct competitors, mm, uh, we can't be uh, going. Oh, what are they doing over there? It's <laughs> fascinating. How did they win that job? Um, <laughs> they won't win it again. Uh, <laughs> so, so I retain an involvement in um, not day to day, but in the development side of that, mm. um, which is I, I'm supposed to be doing it one day a week. Um, I would love to be doing it five days a week because it's it's just really exciting. I can't express how exciting it is. In addition to that, obviously brand culture is is continuing to evolve. Mm. So brand culture has ebbed and flowed over the years. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but that's good because that's... Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I love learning new things. I love being challenged every day. I think uh, if, again, one of the reasons I went from working for myself to working for another company was because I wasn't feeling challenged. I wasn't feeling that I was learning enough new things. Um, so so that's uh, enabled me to continue to learn. And of course, um, uh, with Carlo, um, uh, starting up the sedged Sydney chapter, a lot of the um, uh, uh, US chapters are existing, so there's sort of this handover process and mm. established protocols, etc. Um, so we're just trying to get it started up and that involves simple things like okay well what's our getting access to the email getting access to all of the collateral so the first time that you you know send out invites etc obviously it's going to take you four times as long as when you've done it three times before um getting sponsors for events just simple things like getting together and uh, trying to figure out um, what events uh, are going to work for us. Yeah. What are, what are, what's going to achieve the results that we want? Mm. Yeah, so lots That's of things. That's exciting time. Lots of things, yeah. Yeah, cool. But thank you so much for coming on. That takes us kind of to the end of, of, of the show. Oh. So that's it. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Where can people find out more about you and brand culture? And Well, if you, if you wanted to uh, find out more about... Uh, experiential graphic design I'd suggest that people go to segd.org um, and from there you can just click on the, the awards you'll find us cool <laughs> and so is there like a Sydney chapter kind of button or something on there or anything there, like that there is there uh, s- the Sydney, no there is, <laughs> there is. already the uh, Sydney chapter is only uh, two weeks old or, or so now so um, we don't actually have any posts up but uh, hopefully by the time uh, this goes out there'll be something there cool. to is look like at. Is there like a mailing list or something like that? Certainly. You can contact us through the website. Cool. And um, yeah. And is that open to anybody that might be interested? So if they were a graphic designer that might not be experienced in experiential design, are they able to kind of engage with you guys? Yeah, or absolutely. Is it absolutely. Private club? Okay, cool. No, what we're, what we're trying to do is, um, is grow uh, mm. the understanding, not uh, keep people away from it. Great. So um, definitely 
check out uh, the events that we'll have coming up later in the year, maybe in a in, in a month, um, and uh, we'll be keeping those invites open to everybody, not just uh, oh, members. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And if people wanted to find out about Media Bank, uh, mediabank.com, uh, mediabankpam.com.au, right. and obviously Brand Culture is brandculture.com.au. Cool. All right. Very good. Matt, where can people find you? Uh, Instagram, Matt underscore Leach, L-E-A-C-H. Cool. And I'm Matt Flynn Tracy on pretty much anything. And you can find this episode and more at AUSdesignradio.com. And you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud at AUSdesignradio. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Thanks, gentlemen. Thanks, gentlemen.